my name is Douglas. I'm an accountant for a large tech company in Seattle. My climbing group consisted of Lenny, a high school friend of mine, Brandon, a painter, and Kelly, a botanist that does research for the state university. There's a mountain in Washington state that my climbing group and I have went to climb for a while. I won't say the mountains so you guys won't test my story, but if you figure it out, please, please don't do what we did. A bunch of us conveniently had our vacation time lined up, and we were all itching to climb this mountain together. We usually go climbing at least twice a year, recently climbing Kilimanjaro as one of our biggest expeditions to date. We haven't been able to climb together for a while, so we looked up if the mountain that was open. It was closed for another three weeks, which was odd considering the weather was perfect. Light snowfall, dry switchbacks, and not too much wind at the peak. Since this mountain was so close to where we all lived, and we've never summited it together as a group, we decided to risk it. If we drove out and got turned around, it wouldn't be a big deal. We'd probably have dinner together at a local all-you-can-eat buffet, or find a smaller peak to hike up. We all climbed up this mountain before by ourselves, so we were all very familiar with the terrain and trails. We were confident we could do it safely on our own, so we got our gear together, pulled into Lenny's car, and drove to the base of the mountain. A little over an hour later, we reached a steel gate, the kind that swings in and out over the road with spikes in the front to mess up any car that tries to drive through. Ah, the car park's locked up. Guess we've got to turn around, Kelly said. I noted that there was a chain around swinging on the gate, but no lock. I told the group to wait for me, and I hopped out of the car. I ran over to the chain holding the gate closed, and removed the stick holding the chain in place, and swung the gate open. The car rolled through, and I replaced the chain stick, and hopped back in. That's weird. Why wouldn't they lock it? Brandon asked. We all shrugged, but returned to normal conversation, just pleased we made it through. For the next half an hour, we drove up, winding on washboard roads, stopped to pee and take pictures here and there. We ran to the last corner before the parking lot. Lenny noticed first. Guys, look. Someone's in the info booth. We all squinted to look through the dusty windshield, and we all made out the same picture. A park ranger, on the skinny side, was happily tapping beat out on his clipboard and smiling at us. You know when you get caught walking through the halls at school by the teacher whose class you're skipping? You don't know what to say, as almost anything that leaves your mouth will just make the situation worse. That's how we felt. Lenny somewhat used that feeling, and spoke up when we reached the booth. Hey, he said cheerfully, to mask his worry. Hey guys, heading up the mountain today? The ranger asked. Lenny paused for a second. Yep. As long as it isn't closed. We saw somewhere that it might be closed, is that true? Lenny said. If it's closed, I shouldn't be here, the ranger laughed. They better pay me overtime if that's the case. The car fakes a laugh. Our eyes darted nervously at each other. Was the mountain actually open? Seems pretty empty here. Where is everyone? Lenny asked, gesturing towards the absence of cars in the lot. I don't know, quiet season I guess. More mountain for us, he said, winking. Might go up myself today if I get a chance. I just love the mountain. It's beautiful this time of year. Maybe we'll see you on the trail, Brandon yelled from the back. Hope so, the ranger said. Let me just take your names down. How long do you plan on staying? Just take a hike or overnight, he asked. Overnight, snow camping hopefully, I said. That's Kelly and Brandon in the back, Lenny driving and me, Douglas. The ranger scribbled our info down on his clipboard and slammed it on the table when he finished. Great, be safe, have fun and enjoy the mountain, he called out. We nodded politely and drove into a parking spot. No one really said anything, but we were all really thinking the same thing. 
nothing about that conversation felt normal or safe or even comfortable and everything just felt off. I guess we were just happy that we didn't get kicked off the mountain. Lenny brought up the ranger about 10 minutes into our hike, but that conversation quickly died down. The first hour of the hike were normal, and we sort of forgot about the weird parking lot encounter. About halfway up the switchback portion of the mountain, before the glacier covered peaks, Kelly started feeling sick. We chalked it up to altitude sickness, but found it weird that a seasoned climber like her would feel sick this low. We weren't high up at all. She insisted we keep going. We made it this far already, and don't let me spoil your fun, she said. We camped lower on the mountain than we hoped to, to let Kelly rest. She was really pale, and needed to take breaks more frequently than usual. So we set up a camp right on the edge of the snow. Lenny stayed with Kelly while Brandon and I took our backpacks and walked up the glacier to see with our binoculars. From our elevated position, we could see most of the surrounding landscape. Rolling hills at the foot of the mountain, raging glacier runoff, and the sea of trees that stretched beyond the horizon. Sadly, we didn't spot any wildlife, but we had a laugh making David Attenborough-esque jokes while observing Kelly and Lenny mope around the camp. The wind died down just enough for Brandon and I to hear a strange clicking noise coming from behind us in the face of the mountain. It sounded similar to river rocks bouncing off each other, but it had a strange tempo to it. I looked at the source of the sound and saw someone sort of thrashing around on a patch of exposed gravel and rocks. His rhythm was sort of rhythmic, but still erratic, like a robot copying dance moves. He slowly turned towards us, and once he was totally facing Brandon and I, we could see that it was the park ranger we saw earlier. Brandon and I watched in curiosity and horror as the park ranger jerked and twisted, kicking rocks and jumping up and down. He noticed us and stopped dancing immediately and waved. He motioned for us to come up with him with a big smile on his face. Against every instinct, every gut feeling, Brandon and I couldn't help but join him on his patch of rocks. It was like we were on an escalator and the way our legs effortlessly just carried ourselves to him. Beautiful up here, isn't it? The ranger asked. He had his hands on his hips and his chest puffed out in a sort of exaggerated parody of a proud parent. Oh, for sure, Brandon and I said. I could tell that he was locked in the same sort of trance I was in. I wanted to scream at him to run, yell down the others to call for help, but I was frozen. Yeah, I love it out here. Beautiful time of year, I heard myself say. It was like someone was using my mouth to speak. I had no control over what I said. The ranger took a deep breath, but it looked wrong the way he did it. His shoulders just sort of shrugged and he arched his back unnaturally, like it was someone imitating someone breathe. It didn't occur to me at the time, but I only saw him ever inhale besides when he spoke. His chest would just collapse, but no air would escape. I tried with everything I had in me to pick up my legs and run, but it was as if I had stepped in concrete. I could barely wiggle, like I only had one millimetre of space around my body to move. Glad you guys could come up here for a bit. I love company. Job gets lonely sometimes, he said. With his last sentence, he kicked a pebble down the mountain like a disappointed kid. We all stood in silence for what felt like 20 minutes before I squealed out the only sentence I could manage to say. Who are you? Brandon's eyes shot towards mine, as if I did something horribly wrong. If he'd looked scared before, now he looked mortified. How about the weather? They should open the park earlier. Folks must out on a good three weeks of clear skies, the ranger said. That did it. I broke free. I nearly tackled Brandon over, trying to drag his stiff body away from the ranger. We tumbled a few meters down the glacier in a tangled mess. Going so soon? Stay here for a bit. Take in the view, the ranger called out cupping his hands in front of his mouth, still unable to speak. 
I pulled as hard as I could against Brandon's locked up frame. He too soon broke free and joined me running down the glacier in silence. The ranger didn't follow us, but kept inviting us back to his spot. I honestly don't remember what he was saying, and with every step I took it got harder and harder to breathe. A strange pressure was building up in my head and my vision was slowly tunneling. By the time we reached our camp, I was almost completely blind, save for a drinking straw sized circle of vision. I barreled into the tent's nylon wall and screamed with everything that I could at Lenny and Kelly. We have to go, now. What's going on? yelled Lenny from inside the tent. I tore the door open and saw Lenny bent over Kelly's pale, unconscious body. She's in real bad shape, started mumbling and then fell asleep. She's super cold, like dead cold. What happened to you? Lenny said. He looked up at us and down, grimacing as if we'd been in a brutal car crash. That ranger, he's here. Something's wrong, we just need to go, I said. And leave her, Lenny said. I feel like moving her would kill her. We need to call for help. Maybe we can get an airlift, I said. Where's your satellite phone? My bag, in my tent, he said, pointing to the blue tent a bit higher up the mountain, pitched in a flat patch of gravel. I ran as fast as I could towards the door facing us. It was only until I got within ten feet of it that I noticed. A face pressed hard against the door facing me from inside the tent. The ranger. Its open mouth and eyes were pressed hard against the nylon surface. I quietly unhooked the ice axe from my belt and tiptoed towards the tent before swinging as hard as I could into its face. It felt like I hit a block of ice the way it shattered and splintered all over inside the tent. A horrible, grotesque scream followed. It made my eyes water and my chest shake. It was so high pitched that I could feel my bones vibrate. Whatever was in the tent began savagely ripping up the walls, thrashing and kicking like a trapped animal. It was clawing at the door, trying to find the zipper. I ran, screaming for my friends to run and follow me. We left our tents, gear, and Kelly behind as we scrambled down the mountain as fast as possible. We spent more time tumbling down the face of the mountain than on our feet, but it didn't matter. We reached the parking lot covered in deep gouges from falling on the rocks and roots. Lenny started the car and slammed on the accelerator. We took corners at impossibly fast speeds, slamming into jagged sides of the mountain, carved away to make the road. We even crashed through the gate at the bottom of the hill, which ruined our radiator and sprayed hot coolant all over inside of our car. We drove into town, our car scratched and smoking, then pulled into a parking lot where we threw up and cried. We woke up in the hospital. We told the police we lost control on the back road and that Kelly was with us the whole time. The police searched the mountain and found nothing. No gear, no tents, no Kelly. Just footprints all over the surface of the glacier. Despite all of this, the park and mountain that opened up three weeks later on schedule without issue. I stopped reading updates about the mountain stuff when I learned that a new employee named Kelly joined as the newest member of the park rangers that year. It said that she was a botanist and wanted to study the flora of the park. Lenny and I never spoke to each other after we left the hospital, and the last I heard of Brandon, he quit his job and moved back with his parents in Florida. I still work for the same company, it's been almost a year since this happened, and I have time off coming up again. I feel drawn to that mountain still. It's not open for a couple more weeks, but I know it's not locked, and I know I'll be allowed in. And anyways, I have a conversation to finish up with a particular ranger. I've always considered myself a quiet man. One who prefers solitude and peaceful relaxation over the droning hum of the cities or the pounding bass of nearby drunken parties. 
That's why I moved up here to the upper peninsula of Michigan and took up a position as a park ranger in Porcupine Mountain State Park. Sure, there's not much for a 30-year-old guy to do with his dog, but ever since my wife passed, the wilderness has treated me just fine. Shepard's been here with me since I moved here those seven years ago. He's my best friend, and being a German Shepherd was pretty well suited for this type of climate and environment. As far as the job goes, most days are pretty routine, usually nothing more than rowdy campers breaking minor rules, occasionally responding to fire calls, and less common manhunt for a lost hiker. Black bears are common in the area, so there were a few times I happened to come across an unfortunate camper who thought you were supposed to play dead should you find yourself under attack. Unfortunately, those folk learn pretty quickly that particular strategy doesn't work with that breed of bear. It's always a pity to lose a camper to the wild, and metaphorical insult is added to literal injury when paperwork and folk calls consume the rest of my days in those cases. Thankfully, those sort of calls are rare, as bears are more likely to saunter away from people rather than become aggressive. But apart from that, there's not much else to be said about my job. The state government issued me a nearby cabin in which I live, and it's where I spend the majority of my time, only leaving occasionally to stock up on groceries or firewood from the offsite, and to head to the main office for a couple of days a week. Things have been pretty quiet lately. The weather was starting to get cold as the spring warmed and the cool autumn breeze of Lake Superior blew in from the north. With tourism slowing due to the cold weather, I was able to spend the majority of my days reading and listening to the silence broken every so often by a breeze moving through the treetops, their leaves dancing finely to the tune of their rustling. Today had been particularly quiet, with only a handful of groups of nightmare campers in the entire park, and the day staff being able to manage most, if not all, of the wandering night sleepers. I was able to lose sight of my books without too much worrying and hear my radio go off. The pulsating glow of the fire sitting in front of me was mostly obscured by my book, but would sometimes manage to flare up just enough to remind me to keep it going. Stocking it didn't serve to stay its hunger, but only to rally its appetite for fuel, acting as though it was a living thing. It hissed angrily and doubled in size for a second before sheepishly shrinking back down. I tossed my book down, let out an exasperated sigh as I made for firewood. I stood over what firewood I had left, and I radioed down to HQ with my ranger number. 26 to base. This is base. What's up, David? I recognised Phil's voice coming through the handset. Phil, I've got to run down to the market real quick for some firewood, and I'm going to grab some groceries while I go out too. Going to be about an hour, maybe two. Sure thing. I whistled to Shepherd as I walked towards my truck. He immediately jumped over and beat me to the door, his tail demonstrating his exuberance and it smacked up against a vehicle. The drive wasn't too long, about 20 minutes, but trips off the park were few and far between, so Shepard would eagerly come along whatever trip he was going on. All that meant for him was more attention, not to mention the handful of trees the workers would give him. After unloading my groceries and throwing a few pieces into the fire pit, I piled the rest of the firewood next to my cabin before drawing a tarp over the pole to keep the wood dry. As the evening drew nearer and the sun began slowly descending into the horizon, I armed myself with my radio and a book and loaded some kindling into the fire pit and lighting. I turned my chair to face the bluff overlooking the nearby valley, Copper Lake, colloquially named by the miners that used to inhabit this region was positioned in the valley so perfectly that it took on a reddish brown hue from the light of the setting sun. In the fall, the effect was only exasperated by the red and orange of the forest, giving Copper Lake the illusion of being an actual lake of molten copper. 
The amber light washed over me and bathed my little home in shades of sepia. The inside of my eyelids, a relaxing shade of orange. I was woken by Shepard barking at me before shifting his attention and barking aggressively at my radio handset. There was a hissing coming through the radio with a voice buried underneath. I didn't immediately pick up on what was happening, but then I was able to make out the voice. Whoever it was sounded panicked and out of breath. Please, please, can anyone hear me? Mayday, SOS. They shouted between gasps of breath. Oh God, it was already dark. Adrenaline took over as I picked up my handset. Yes, I can hear you. What's wrong? Where are you? Campers' radios will sometimes come through the radio if they're not on the same frequency, but it's hardly ever anything of substance. Please, you've got to help me. There's something here. Where are you? I repeated. The possibilities ran through my head. Had he disturbed a bear? It was late enough in the year, and they were beginning to hibernate for the winter, but that hadn't stopped people from waking up from their slumber before. I'm by water. There's a, there's a small mountain. Rusting her clothes and trembling fingers on zippers made their presence through the transmitted sound waves. I'm south of the mountain, and there's water here. I, um, I'm waving a light around, and wouldn't you know it, I saw a slight light flickering down in the valley below. I see you. Stay there. I'm on my way. I quickly threw my coat, grabbed my handgun, and made my way off the cliff. There was a steep incline on the cliff that extended down to the valley below. I slid down it before for quick access to the area, and now seemed like a good time to use that. I gathered only a few scratches and scrapes on my arm from the descent down the cliff, and hurried and leapt up and continued in the direction of the light I'd seen by the lake. Shepard hopped down to different rocks and ledges to keep up with me. I knew these woods well, and had ventured down the alleys before. As I approached the lake, my pace slowed until I was quietly walking through the brush, listening for any signs of distress. Nothing. It was as if this person had already disappeared. There were no signs of life immediately apparent to me down by the water. Then I heard it. A gunshot. One long gunshot. The implications drawn from which were never good thoughts. Tentatively, I made my way towards the sound, leading me directly to the cliff face on the opposite side of the ravine. Keeping my flashlight aimed low, I studied the surrounding woods as I made my way to the rocky piece. Nothing still. Then another gunshot, although this one was much closer, as if it was fired directly into my head. I spun around, and as I pulled my handgun from its holster, only to find that it didn't come right from behind me, it came from what was behind me in the rocks. A cave. Something felt strange somehow, and I never noticed this cave before. How many times have I lost a missing person because they might have ventured into this cave? I relaxed my grip and pulled my flashlight from my belt, crossing my arms and steadying my aim with my left arm that was now shining a light into the inky black. A hungry darkness consuming the light from my flashlight. The darkness was almost palpable, as if there was a shadow standing directly in front of me. Inching into the mouth, I called out, Hello, are you in there? No response. Of course, I mumbled. To no one in particular. The entrance to the cave was fairly sizable, about 8 feet tall and maybe 3 feet wide. As I moved forward, the soft ground turned into hard rock, my boots making a soft click with each step. It was a therapeutic sound for me. Shepard started growling and whining at the portal in front of me. He was never a fan of caves, something to which I had become accustomed. I was starting to get discouraged as I cautiously made my way into the cave. Looking back to find him lying, whimpering, still as his eyes begged me not to go. There was nothing of interest so far, 
No signs that led me to whoever had taken refuge here. No signs that a bear had made his way to the abode. Nothing. The air was simultaneously heavy and light, like if you were to stir up a mixture of oil and water. They weren't combined, just kind of entwined. I can't really describe how the atmosphere felt. I didn't allow myself any time to dwell on it. The soft clap of my boots echoed faintly off the walls which each step deeper into the unknown. The air started to grow heavier, and the familiar smell of rotten animals started to make its way into my nose, lending more credibly to what I thought I'd found myself venturing into a den of a local bear. Step by step, I moved through the tunnel until I entered the cavern. The natural rocky dome dripping down onto the floor in various spots within the massive open area. The walls reverberated their sing-song drips off rocky walls and harmonised with each soft step as I circled into the perimeter. There was something there, a sound buried under the echoing drips and rock beneath my feet, much akin to walking on fresh heavy snow. I shined my light onto the source of the nose, and then I saw it. Slumped before me, under the harsh eye of my flashlight, was a creature. Humanoid in size, but far from it in appearance. Its skin was grey and tattered, with putrid flesh hanging loose from its body, like rotten meat on the bones of a long dead carcass. Two spindly legs protruded from its body, bent beneath it unnaturally, with the help of an extra knee on each of the thing's legs. The creature's arms bore a similar appearance. An extra joint caused its arms to arch in front of it, where they ended in a massive clawed hands, hovering over a mandled mass of flesh and bone. Its head was looking down towards a body in front of it, which I now recognised to be a bear. The lifeless animal's fur stewed from its corpse. The creature dug one hand into the pile in front of it and slowly drew out a fistful of meat. The squelching sounds of raw meat sent shivers through me, and almost drowned out the pounding of my heart within my own eardrums for a second. It slowly drew its hand up to its face, while simultaneously turning to face me. It was only now that I got a good look at its face. Dear God, his face. Its eyes were large and a horribly bright shade of yellow. A piece of skin under its eye was so loose, I swear I could see the white shade of bone. This thing looked at me and it smiled. Smiled. Its teeth were like that of a deep sea anglerfish. Long, needle-like and menacing. With bits of flesh hanging between the roots of its teeth. Oh good, you're here. Please come and join me, won't you? It spoke in the distressed voice I'd come to rescue. Now seconds passed before I'd forgotten about my drawn firearm and dropped it onto the floor. Fire immediately became flight, and I did what any human with an instinct would live to do. I ran. Claws scraped along rocky walls behind me, and the stomping of my boots resonated in my ears heavily until each exhale and gasp for air would drown it out, grunting me for a moment of mental escape as adrenaline moved my numb legs in a flurry. The skittering and scraping flowed as I found my way back to the entrance and burst through the valley door to the Copper Lake. Fresh air rapidly replaced the stout and fetid air that had filled my lungs just a moment ago. I bolted past Shepard as he quickly turned and followed. Barks and cries were paired with the frantic sprinting of his four soft paws against the soft earth as we raced to the cliff as we described earlier to reach the valley. I saw Shepard in the corner of my eye as he raced to the regular path of the cliff. I was too panicked to look behind me as I began to climb, rhythmically sinking my fingernails into the earth and scaling the incline as I slid down earlier. The earth and nature I'd become to love was the only thing that separated me from the refuge of my home. There was no sign of my dog when I reached the top. The cliff wasn't too large, and he'd beaten me up to the top multiple times over the years. I ran into my cabin and slammed the door behind me. I watched for Shepard to batter up the path like I normally would. 
but there was no sign of him. There was no sign of anything. My heart sank if I continued to peek out my windows, but still, I saw nothing. I sat on my bed and passed out from fear and shock within seconds. Every night since then, I can hear a pair of long, sharp claws scratching against my house, in one long, methodical circle of the perimeter. The scratching stops, and I peek out my window, only to see a pair of yellow eyes watching me from the nearby trees. Those motionless yellow eyes match mine, and I see the moonlight reflect off its awful, toothy grin. It's been a week now, no one has come by to check on me. My radio yields nothing but a soft static, and there's still no sign of Shepard. I'm running low on supplies, and there's nothing else I can do now. I'm going to make a break for my truck to try and get out of here. I just need to beat this thing to my truck. I have no other choice. A few years ago, my friend Tez and I set out on a great American road trip. We were going to drive from New York to Los Angeles, zigzagging through the country for six weeks. We were both in our early 20s, pretty broke, and as my mum had been a long haul trucker, I suggested that to save a ton of money, we should sleep in the back of our hatchback. It was a pretty cozy setup. We brought some blankets and sheets at Goodwill and cut them up into curtains. By the end of the first week, we'd gotten so we could set up a camp in about 10 minutes. Luggage moved into the front, curtains up, bedding laid down and out for the night. We slept in parking lots, free campsites, rest areas, basically anywhere it seemed safe and semi-legal. There was never a night, after the first night, where we felt scared, until the last week of the trip in Arizona. We were near Flagstaff, and had gotten pretty used to our routine. We would go on a set schedule, and we would never drive for more than 3 or 4 hours a day. No destination really in mind. Outside a few must-see landmarks, we'd drive to places we found the night before on Google and take suggestions from other campers, locals and people we met. We'd also gotten very good at making friends. We went to Denny's with a group of rednecks we met at a campsite, in the back of their pickup, because I got hungry and overheard them saying where they were going to go. We met an 80 year old cowboy who took us out drinking and taught us how to line dance at a country bar, played the guitar with some musicians in the middle of a thunderstorm. Got fed breakfast and dinner by a ton of campers who invited us to hang out with them. Spent the 4th of July with a family who basically adopted us into their campsite. Grandma gave us some weed candy. Basically every encounter we had with a stranger was a positive one. This night didn't look to be any different. We found a free campsite on Google and drove up into the woods, following our GPS. We were pretty far out of town and something seemed a little bit off when we pulled up to the campsite. There was one RV parked and two cars further up in the trees. We pulled up near the RV and a man opened the door. Tez waved hello and he just stared at her. His expression was completely blank. Then, as if she hadn't said anything, he just slowly closed the door again, staring at us the entire time. Figuring he just wanted some privacy and thought would be obnoxious, we pulled further down the road and found a flat spot to park the car. Instead of setting up our routine of setting up camp immediately while it was still light out, we goofed around for a while, smoking and laughing and taking dumb photos of ourselves. Tez pointed out a campfire further down the campsite, and we decided to go be friendly. We'd met so many cool people in the previous five weeks by just going up and offering a beer or just chatting, so we wandered over. Near the campsite there were two men, the owners of the cars we'd seen earlier. They seemed friendly and we sat down and chat with them. They were drinking and smoking and we sat down and had a beer with them. One of the men seemed pretty off, and we came to find out that two of the men didn't actually know one another. The older man was definitely on some sort of drugs. He was spinning in circles and talking about UFOs, however he seemed harmless. 
this left us chatting with a younger man, who claimed to be a former park ranger. He was handsome and easygoing. We spent several hours just chatting about our trip, families and everything. Then he started talking about the bear. He'd seen a bear earlier in the forest. Tess didn't believe him and he pulled out his camera to show her photos of the bear. It was very close to the campsite and we both were a little freaked out. It wasn't unheard of for one of us to get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, so the idea of a bear hanging around in the night spooked us out. The ranger just laughed and then his expression completely changed. It's hard to describe, but his voice seemed somehow cold. He said, if you get out of your car in the middle of the night, it's not the bear you should be worried about. I kept waiting for the laugh, or for him to nudge Tez with his elbow. Jokes on the foreigner and the city girl, right? He never did. I laughed awkwardly and made a dumb joke about a serial killer in the woods. My friend laughed as well and joked about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We moved on to another subject, but within five minutes the ranger had come back to it and was talking about something grabbing us from our car in the middle of the night. No matter how we tried to steer the conversation away from serial killers, he kept latching back on. The older man was high as a kite and at this point was staring at the stars, not talking. We'd just awkwardly laugh and sip our beer and try to get the conversation going somewhere else. Then the ranger stood up and walked towards the caller to get another beer. At this point it's pitch black out and I can't see anything outside the circle of light from the campfire. The beer caller was outside the circle. Suddenly there's a red dot in the darkness and it took a moment for him to realise it's a camera. The ranger is holding a camera. He had taken a photo of us. I could see the screen on his camera light up. Now it wasn't odd for people who he met to ask to take pictures with us. My friend Tez is gorgeous, dark hair, blue eyes, like a young Megan Fox and we were friendly. People like having photos of themselves. It was an entirely strange thing to have this person taking photos of us without asking or even indicating that that's what he's doing. We were both staring at him like a deer in headlights at this point, but instead of realising what he's doing is a bit weird, he checks his camera, adjusts some things and takes another photo, this time with a flash, not asking us to smile, not proposing a group photo and no explanation. After this photo he comes back to the fire and sits down, not a word about the photo. At this point me and Tez are mutually freaked out. We make up some BS excuse that we need to go and set up a campfire and nope the hell out. When we stand to leave, the UFO guy smiles and says to have a good night. The ranger however smiles at us with a smile that doesn't reach his eyes and says, Be careful out there, there's more than bears in the woods. Every hair in my body stood on end. I wasn't alone in my discomfort either because Tez laughed a response out and pulled me away from the campfire towards the car. We rushed back to the car, which we only found in the dark by referencing the RV, and jumped in the front seats. My friend Tez is all but hyperventilating. Why did he take pictures of us? I was shaken. I responded, I read that some serial killers sometimes warn their victims. She stared at me for a second and locked the car doors. Do you think he just took victim photos? We both freaked out. She's in a full panic and turns the headlights on in the car. I immediately yelled at her to turn them off because he knows exactly where our car is. God knows why, but that's the only night we hadn't set up camp. We didn't need to tear anything down, so we just put the car in drive and floored it out of the campsite. As we got to the end of the dirt road, Ranger was walking towards our car with that same cold expression. Big fan of the subreddit for Lurkery. This happened to me a few years ago, and I don't often talk about it since it's weird and gory and not the kind of story you whip out at cocktail parties, but here it goes. A couple of years ago, I was stressed out from college and big city life 
and decided to spend a long weekend in the woods doing what my city friends consider utter luency and us outdoorsy people consider nirvana. Deep woods free camping, in the winter alone. While that sounds like the beginning of a missing persons report, if you're an experienced outdoorsman, it's pretty safe. I also take a secret pleasure in being the white trash warrior s my dad always hoped I'd be. I always hated the feeling of claustrophobia that came with being a female in the city, avoiding eye contact, not walking alone at night. When you're a girl out in the woods, you're in charge. You're safe within the warm embrace of your own solitary freedom, or so I thought. I spent a few hours on the roads, the surroundings getting wilder and wilder as I drove. I parked in an allowed roadside ditch, with a compass and a map, hiked until I was in a mile's reach of some good ice fishing. I was at least four miles from the road. I made an extremely discreet camp in a clearing, with just one little hole in the snow for my tiny tent and my tiny campfire. After a couple of beautiful days of just hiking and relaxing around camp, I made the trek to the fishing hole. Everything was in utter winter stillness. The air was crisp and the only signs that I wasn't in a perfect vacuum were the twitterings of birds and very different rumblings of half-frozen waterfalls. After a mile or so of crunching along in the snow, I silently celebrated my compass skills when I came out at the exact place I'd intended to. I punched a hole in the thinnest crust of ice and started to fish. My first catch came so quickly. After a few weeks under a frozen surface, the fish are hungry. I was feeling oddly fatigued and jumpy, so I decided to just clean the fish here and now and take it straight back to camp to cook. I quickly realised my fish preparation skills were rusty at best. I cursed my lack of preparation as I cut myself to the second time. Something in my peripheral senses was irritating me, but I was very set at my task, focusing on the motions in the slippery mess. The thing in periphery was growing more irritating, like the buzzing of a fly or the yammering of a sibling. I carved and hacked and sliced my hand open freshly as a fish slipped out of my hands and into the snow. Frustrated, I shouted, F off without whistling, will you? Silence resumed, and then my heart stopped. Living in a college neighbourhood, I had grown accustomed to white noise that I had failed to recognise how grossly inappropriate this sound was in context. The silence weighed down on me as I broke into a sweat. The only reason a human would be this deep into the woods would be to hunt, and no hunter would give himself away like that. And if he was whistling for any other reason, shouldn't he have reacted to my outburst, yelled something vulgar back, apologised? No, nothing. Just total silence in the woods. Silence as pure as it was before I spoke. Unsure if I'd misheard the tweetings of a bird or something, I decided the fish was a lost cause, slung my gear over my shoulder and headed for camp. I trudged off in the woods, and about a quarter of a mile from camp, I saw a large mass protruding from the snow. Apprehensive but drawn, like a moth to a flame, I trudged up to what materialised in the closing distance as a moose kill. A really, really good moose kill. A clean shot through the upturned eye staring at me, staring at me and saying something, saying something that was imposing a sense of dread on me, but a dread I couldn't translate. I ran, I ran hard and fast, in the snow in the woods. Everything looked the same. I knew I was moving south, and I knew I'd passed camp on the east. I made for the road, eventually sliding down to a weary trudge, calming at the comforting sight of the woods clearing ahead to make way for the country roadway. I looked to my left and saw my car 50 yards or so down, jogged to it, and drove the lonely 15 miles to the first motel. I had none of my belongings, and no earthly idea of why I'd just abandoned my ship like that. It was only as I was sitting up watching infomercials at night that it started to fall together. Why would the park service issue free camp passes for the same stretch of woods that allowed hunting? The moose defied everything of my rudimentary understanding of hunting, even the snow to call it. Decomp starts quickly on an animal that size. You'd have time for a few quick pictures, but then you want to have it dressed quickly. 
Why would you want to kill a moose five miles into the forest? How could you ever drag it back to the road? In the morning, in a sleep deprived and paranoid state, I described everything I'd seen and thought I'd heard to a very confused park ranger. He seemed more vexed about illegal hunting than any of my other crazy city girl ramblings. He said he wanted to come and pick me up and had me take him to where I thought the kill site was. I said I was only going if he brought a gun. He sighed and told me when to meet him. We rode into the woods on an ATV, with me awkwardly riding on the back as if I was on the back of the world's awkwardest motorcycle. We got to a large impression in the snow where the moose had been. Blood was everywhere. There was also the distinct track of the carcass being dragged. The drag made a smooth trail in the snow, as if the carcass were on a tarp. The ranger said he should take me back now. He asked where my camp was. I pointed in the direction of the drag marks. It looked like he was finally sharing my unease. Back to the hotel, I washed my clothes in the sink and prepared my drive home in the morning. An unknown number called my phone. It was the park ranger. The moose had been dragged into my campsite. He described the scene as a huge mess. He wasn't sure if an animal would help make the mess, but one thing was clear. Someone had cut into my tent with a knife. I asked about the rest of my belongings. He said darkly, You don't want them back. They're covered in moose mess. So, um, what happens now? I said. Well miss, you're gonna have to keep an eye out for this guy. I haven't heard or seen anything like this before. I'm really sorry this happened. And that was it. No closure. No explanation. In the years that have passed, I've tried different applications of reasons. A hunter who needed help, but knew I was already gone. A deranged psychopath looking for his second kill. One of the few friends I shared the story with envisioned him as some deep woods Sweeney Todd. He dubbed him Moosey Todd. I still don't know why I didn't hear the gunshot. The whistling seemed so vivid in my memory, but was it even real? One question has definitely been answered. I'll never go back into the woods alone again. At the end of May 1999, I was headed into my freshman year of high school. That summer, me and a group of six girls from my church went on a mission trip up to the coast from Riverside, CA to Mount St. Helens, Washington. Three of the girls' mothers acted as our drivers and chaperones. We basically all piled into an old Chevy van and a station wagon, headed up PCH, and had the trip of a lifetime. I got baptised at a historic mission in St. Louis Hospito. We spent three days in San Francisco, saw the capital, Portland, Oregon, Yosemite. Basically, we got to see every worthy landmark and stay in every noteworthy town from SoCal to the Canadian border. When we stayed in Yosemite National Park, we spent three nights at the Cheddar Lodge. While in Yosemite and sightseeing, the old Chevy van died in the middle of nowhere. Luckily, even though we were unable to get a cell signal within an hour, someone stopped and helped us. This was so long ago, I don't remember all the details. But basically, the owner of the van told us later that the mechanic told her that someone tampered with the engine. She was very upset by this and said it was something that had been done intentionally. The van had to be abandoned and we had to use a rental the rest of the way. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but it turns out Carrie Anthony Stainer, aka the Yosemite Killer, was the maintenance man for the Cheddar Lodge during this time. He had murdered and decapitated a park ranger by the time we were guests at the lodge. The very next month, he gained access to a room where a woman and her young daughter and her daughter's young friend were staying under the guise of checking the room for something. Basically, he knocked on the door in the middle of the night and because he worked at the lodge, they opened the door. He abducted them and then did horrible things to them, murdered them and decapitated them. I can't say that I remember seeing him, but we probably did as we were there for three nights. 
it's just one of those things I look back on and think he could have easily knocked on one of our doors as it was just a few weeks before and decided he wanted to abduct us and kill us. I feel incredibly lucky I dodged that bullet. If the time frame wasn't so close, it wouldn't creep me out as much, but it continues to haunt me 16 years later. When my son, Aaron, was only nine, he was struck by a box truck while riding his bike. It wasn't the driver's fault, and I have never seen a man so sorry in my entire life. Aaron had fallen over at the wrong time and ended up in the path of the vehicle. Still, a boy getting hit by a truck going 25 miles per hour isn't a great thing. The accident caused a brain bleed that permanently damaged my boy, and he spent weeks in the hospital. It was the scariest thing of my life, and my wife and I rarely slept during that period. Aaron pulled through though, but suffered some minor brain damage. Nothing extremely bad, he can talk, walk and enjoy life, which is the most important thing. But he occasionally has seizures, has a few minor speech problems and his mind wanders more than it did before. His recovery was a breath of fresh air and a weight lift off our shoulders. The doctors didn't seem either pessimistic nor optimistic during this day and we were constantly left wondering what was going to be left of our bright boy that loved to draw. During his stay, he would constantly credit a man named William for his recovery. The doctor, nurses and the physical therapist had no idea who he was talking about, and we thought perhaps he got the name of the staff confused. The doctor's name was Westing, and there was a nurse, Willard, as well. It wasn't until later in his stay that he roughly described William as an older man, dark hair that was thicker on the sides, and always wearing a hospital gown. Despite the staff not knowing who he was, we assumed it was probably a patient on the same floor that would bump into him on occasion. Aaron came home after his recovery and immediately seemed different. This was to be expected, changes in his personality, attention issues and speech disturbances were forewarned. Those things were occasionally present and minor, but what concerned us was his activity in the bedroom. Late at night, we would sometimes hear Aaron whispering, laughing and even arguing. He is an only child, and it's just the three of us, so we had no idea what was going on and became a little concerned that he was talking to himself in his room so late at night. We brought it up with his doctor on numerous occasions, and he said that while it isn't extremely common for someone to hallucinate, it would be a combination of the side effects, healing process, and the imagination of a child. We chose to ignore the behaviour, assuming it would eventually slow. It didn't. It increased over the next month. Aaron sit in his room until 1, 2, even 3 in the morning talking. Even more worrying, the laughter and whispering was being replaced by arguing and crying. We tried to talk to Aaron about it, and it was obvious his mood would change, visibly change. If we asked him who he was talking to or arguing with the night before, he would just shut down and get teary-eyed, even though it was obviously bothering him. 
his response would always be, no one, or I'm not. Just asking would sometimes sour the mood for the entire day, and so we try to walk on eggshells regarding it. This behaviour went on for even longer, Aaron talking to someone late at night and trying to ignore it during the day. The arguments, however, became more clear. My wife, on numerous occasions, heard Aaron yelling for the mystery friend to leave him alone or go back. It was on one occasion that we both heard him say, I didn't ask you to come home with me, that we started to piece things together. The morning after, we heard Aaron yelling, loudly, about not asking his imaginary friend to follow him. Was the morning we all sat down and started to talk to him about it. My wife, the caller and karma of the two of us, started to take a very delicate conversation. Why don't you draw anymore? she asked. We had noticed that Aaron's favourite hobby, drawing, had ceased. I don't want to, he said, and he looked so sad and lost at that moment. I inquired why. We theorised that prior to this, perhaps he had a hard time with the hand coordination, but we now felt that it may have to do with his sleepless nights. I don't like what I draw, he said, and then began to cry a little. Does the person you yell at not like your drawings? My wife thought we had it all figured out, but we came to find out we didn't. No, he doesn't want me to draw him, and I want to. Now I don't. His tears were slowing, and it was obvious he had something to tell us. Before he could, I made the million dollar accusation. William, I said, pretending I knew the answer, even though I wasn't sure. William was so nice at the hospital. He started to look a little pow as he began spilling the beans, and repeatedly dropped a whisper while talking. I wanted to draw of him when we got home, but he didn't want me to. Then he started getting mad about things I was doing, so I kicked him out. He paused, and my wife wrapped her arm around him and told him to go on. So he only stands outside my window now. He stares in and is real mad, and yells at me through the window at night. He doesn't look at me the same now. I slid my son my tablet and stylus and told him to draw. Usually his art would be cars, houses, cartoons, and occasionally a superhero he'd think up. He was always very talented when it came to drawing, had his own style. He began drawing and slowly talked. I think he's a ghost dad. I know you say they aren't real, but I really think he's a ghost. I wanted to tell him that ghosts aren't real, to tell him that maybe his head injury caused him to imagine something that wasn't there, but I wasn't sure. He finished drawing after a minute, and what he drew scared the hell out of both me and my wife. We tried to hide it from Aaron. I saved the art. Is this him at the hospital? I already knew it wasn't. It was after they came home. After Aaron annoyed him. No, it's him outside the window. His mouth gets really big, and he doesn't have eyes anymore. Like, he pretends to have eyes, or can't take them out. Did he tell you he was a ghost at the hospital? My wife was balancing how she should approach this. I had honestly given up on trying to figure that out. No, he said he was from the room next door. He would come at night and tell me stories to get me better. Aaron was breaking down at this point, so he thought this was going to be a good point to stop the third degree. You aren't in trouble, son. Do you want to sleep in our room tonight? I didn't want him in his room anymore. Aaron sprung up happier and asked if we could watch Netflix on the television, and we agreed. After the conversation, my wife called the doctor, and I went and played the PlayStation with my son for a bit to take his mind off of it. My wife eventually got a hold of him and had a long conversation. When she was done, we went into the dining room and talked about it. The doctor didn't think this was normal, but couldn't say for sure if it was a side effect of the accident, something to do with the seizures, which we hadn't witnessed since in the hospital, or him manifesting an emotional issue as a ghostly man. My wife asked him if a William had ever been in the room next to Aaron and died, but the doctor flat out told us that even if he could find that out, he wouldn't be able to tell us. 
He did seem certain that there was no ghost or demon, and it comforted us. Why? Because we didn't want to believe. Aaron slept in our room that night, and didn't get up and whisper, talk, laugh, or argue the entire time. He slept. This was bittersweet. On one hand, our son had a night without odd behaviour. On the other hand, it seemed frightening that the strange behaviour would only manifest when he was alone, almost a validity to what he said. We continued with him in our room for a few weeks, and not one night did he act strange. He watched television and slept soundly. This meant that we were going to have to do a test that no parent wants to do. We had to put Aaron back in his room for a night and risking him, well, see William. It was 11 at night, my wife and I were just waiting, waiting so much. Occasionally, one of us would stand next to Aaron's bedroom door and listen for anything abnormal. We had put him to bed, and he was reluctant. At nine, he was sound asleep. Between the two of us, we had no idea when his episode would actually start. It would always be a, one of us got up for the toilet to get a drink or couldn't sleep type of thing. So wait, we did. Midnight came and went, and judging by the fact I'm detailing the hours where everything was fine, you can guess that one hour things weren't quiet. I will skip one in the morning and go straight to a little after two. A creak from the room, possibly him shifting around, but it was shortly followed by a loud little kid whispering. And I wasn't going to give it a chance to get back to arguing, so I burst the door open. Across the door, Aaron in his Spider-Man pyjamas was standing at the window. No face on the other side, but he turned quickly around and I could tell the boy was angry. He came back and wanted in, Aaron said, more angry than scared. I told him no and he got mad. He was about to start yelling when you... He stopped and turned around to the window. I said my son's name. No one was at the window, and I thought that maybe he was still seeing him. He's hiding, Aaron said, not taking his eyes off the window. He's hiding out there, waiting for you to leave. Dad mode turned on, and if something was really bugging my son, I was going to handle it. If it was my boy's mind causing it, I was going to put on a show. I walked to the window and opened it, held my head out, and began yelling for him to come back out. I walked to the window and opened it, held my head out and began yelling for him not to come back. Then my wife screamed. I turned and yelled, it's just me yelling at him, he came back. I had obviously startled my wife and wanted to comfort her. She rounded the corner to the hall to Aaron's door and reached in and grabbed me, pulling me away from the room. She looked scared to death and I felt pretty bad for the spur of the moment performance. When we got far enough away, I could tell that she was still very frightened, and I realised it was something else. What she told me is bringing me to tears as I write this. While you were yelling with your head out the window, I heard a man's voice from outside say, I'll be back for Aaron outside his wall. I ran outside as she ran back to Aaron's room, ready to kick the head in of whoever was talking to my son, but no one was there. No man or ghost, no car, no noises. After I checked the house, we put Aaron to bed, and we stayed in the hall and talked. My wife told me it sounded like a loud, angry whisper. Not so much someone yelling back. Aaron has been in our room for over a month now, and he sleeps perfectly fine. I tried to research the name William for offenders in my area, or around the hospital. Nothing. Can't find anyone that matches the description either. My wife fully believes that something followed our son home from the hospital, and I'm inclined to agree. We try not to leave him alone so much, in case William comes back. Our son still doesn't draw, which is very sad, but we can understand. The whole ordeal has been a lot for him, and he handled it well, but he's too afraid to draw. 
We don't know exactly what William said to make him so afraid of doing it, and he won't tell us. Our guess is that William made some mighty big threats, which makes whatever or whomever this is dangerous. I still have the drawing he did of William. I absolutely hate looking at it. It's a shame. We think our son is talented for his age, and maybe one day we can leave this all behind. We live in Taiwan, and as any native Fozerman would know, Taiwan is a place with a ton of ghosts, demons, and weird stuff going on. This is a supposedly true story. I heard from a friend who's in the military and witnessed the event. My friend was an enlisted OR1 soldier, stationed at a military base in a mount near Nutapai City. No, Nutapai City is not Tapai. I won't exactly tell you where, but the base once served as ammunition storage depot and has since been abandoned. From what he told me, the base had 12th century posts, and every single one of them had its own spooky history. But what really piqued my interest was when he told me about a mannequin in one of the posts that came to life. Here's what he told me. There was one sentry post, sentry post number two, which was completely empty except for an intercom phone and a mannequin. For some weird reason, our commanding officers didn't bother to have a single soldier stationed there, and for some even weirder reason, a mannequin was wearing a military uniform with a helmet and a toy rifle was placed inside. Some kind of sick joke maybe. It had later toppled over on its own, but no one really bothered to set it back up, as that mannequin was really creepy and no one wanted to go near the sentry post, especially after nightfall. It was after a hectic day of training and pretty much everyone in the barracks were unconscious. That was until our squad leader came rushing in and screamed for us to get our asses out of bed and gather inside in three minutes straight. We were thinking it was some kind of emergency drill, or maybe the Chinese were invading, or whatever. We were just really unhappy that we had been called to wake up at such a late hour without any forewarning. As we stood to attention, we saw our commanding officers rushing to sentry post number two, accompanied by a few other cronies. They emerged a few moments later, looking a bit shaken and all just back to bed. A few days later, one of our superiors told us what happened. Apparently an NCO, security sergeant, at the main building received a phone call in the dead of night from one of the sentry posts. Um, sir, the voice began, blurring crackling. The NCO absentmindedly glanced at the flashing light from the control panel, which indicated the source of the call, and almost fell over in shock. The phone call was from number two, which was supposedly empty. The voice spoke again, much clearer this time. Sir, I've been standing here for 20 years. Can I have a break? The NCO was already freaking out and rang the alarm to notify his superiors. The commanding officers saw that there was a breach security in the base and put the base on high alert and woke us up as well. At this point, the unidentified speaker at the end of the line hadn't heart up yet and continued to make some kind of sign noise until the line went dead. Needless to say, a bunch of armed officers and soldiers rushed into number two immediately to find out what was happening, and found the intercom phone hanging from its cord. The mannequin, which had previously toppled over, was in an upright position again. As for the phone receiver, the mannequin's hands were holding the other receiver. About a week later, our base invited a traditional magician to perform a few cleansing rituals, burn the mannequin, and put whatever restless spirit that resides in sentry post number two to rest. The intercom phone was also removed, and number two remained empty ever since. Of no, the mannequin had been there for only two or three years, 
not 20, as the ghost caller had previously claimed. And just to make the entire incident even more spooky, the intercom phone at sentry number 2 hadn't been functional for years. The line wasn't even connected. There is much which we do not understand in this world. Claims of ghosts, paranormal activity, and things which defy all logic and explanation. What you are about to hear is a recollection of incidents that have happened to me. These events have left me with many unanswered questions and a healthy respect for the paranormal. 1990s Apollo Beach, Florida. I was around five years old, but I'll never forget this in vivid detail. My parents were taking me and my two half-brothers to Universal Studios. Before we left, my brothers and I were outside in the backyard. I remember it being a sunny morning, warm weather, and I was playing with my dog Bobo. He was a Yorkie. We were running around together and I remember chasing him back and forth, through the backyard, and around the tree. Lots of fun for a five-year-old, I guess. Then my mum called us in to get ready to leave. We go to the park, and come back later at night. I start walking around the house looking for my dog, and ask my mum where he is. She and my dad take me to a room and talk to me. My first death talk. My mum tells me that Boba was hit by a car the night before. Some girl knocked on our door crying, saying that she hit him. I try to argue with my mum, because I was playing out back with him earlier in the morning. But she insisted. Apparently my brothers already knew this happened. I'm the youngest, so I spent the night upset. I'm wondering how it could be possible when I know I was playing him in the morning. Something I shall never forget. This next incident took place in 1995, in Tampa, Florida. There was a week or two period where I would wake up to the living room TV being turned on at around 5am every morning. We had a Zenith TV. My bedroom door opened up straight into the hallway which was directly connected to the living room. It was maybe five feet from my door to the open living room space. The TV was against the wall. So if I left my room, the TV would be on my right, a few feet away from my door. I would usually just walk out and turn it off and then go back to bed. It would always turn off by the button on the TV itself one time, and the last time it happened. I walked out as I usually did, and the rocking chair across from the TV was rocking back and forth. This was a lazy boy recliner. I remember pausing, resting up against the couch arm directly in front of me, and just watching this thing go back and forth whilst the TV was on. Nothing about this gave me a bad vibe, and I had no fear of the situation. It just didn't feel bad. The chair stopped rocking after probably a minute and a half of me watching it. 
and I asked it to please stop doing that and turned off the TV. And it never came on again. It was the same location a year or so later. One night I was lying in bed. My head was against the wall of the window and I left my bedroom door open all the time. I could see the silhouette of my desk in my room and earlier in the day, I purchased a model plane. It was a phantom jet or something, and it was still on top of the desk, so I could see the silhouette of the plane. That is just resting on its plastic wheels. I start to get this weird feeling as I'm laying there, so I open my eyes and see the wings of my jet moving around. This model is hard plastic, and those wings would never bend like it was. It almost looked like taking putty and moving it around. They were going up and down. The tail fin was also going back and forth. Again, I am the only one seeing a black silhouette of this. I put the covers over my head and occasionally looked out and it would still be there. I eventually fell asleep under my covers. The next day, I told my mum about it. She was concerned and believed me, which is rare from all the haunting house episodes I've seen. And after that incident, my room always had this dark feeling to it. I always felt like someone was watching me when I was home. I remembered my dad taking me to the movies to get my mind off it. That Jim Carrey movie, uh, The Truman Show, I think had just come out, and we watched it. Not the greatest. For about a week or so, anywhere I went in the house, I felt as if I were being followed. Any time that I was on the computer, on AOL for example, I looked over my shoulder, because I sensed someone was behind me, and my neck would always have hairs sticking up. I remember being in the kitchen one night to get a drink, and I heard footsteps from behind me. I would turn and look, and nothing would be there. It freaked me out, so I ran out of the kitchen, and the footsteps ran with me. I ran to my mum, and told her what was going on, and she was freaked out. So she called her ex-sister-in-law, who is a big-time Catholic, who told her about reading verses from the Bible, and burned the plane. We ended up doing just that. Once we burned the plane, and she read some verses, the dark feeling lifted from the house, and I never had that issue again. Now, the following incident happened in summer of 1997, and continued on until the year 2000, in Lawton, Virginia. I started dating this girl that I met on AOL, and I would spend the summers in her place. We had met in Disney World back in January 1998, and her parents were cool with it, since they knew she and I weren't both 30-year-old men. The next few stories are for multiple events happening in between this timeline. So, the first night I ever stayed at their house, I slept in her brother's room. He was in Ohio visiting his dad for a few weeks, so he was gone before I got there, and wouldn't be returning for a few weeks. 
It was upstairs on the second floor, right across from her room. She kept her door closed. This was a custom-built Ryan home that the mother had built with the recently deceased husband. There are no lights in this room for some reason, besides the TV and the lamp to his iguana that he told me to take care of until he got back. Unfortunately, it died from not eating. He had a TV with a VHS mounted and only had Revenge of the Nerds on VHS. So I had to keep playing and rewinding to that to fall asleep to. I'm now in the point of my life where I have to fall asleep to either TV or music. I can't do straight darkness with quiet. So I'm laying there all of a sudden. The cracked bedroom door slowly starts to open. Creaking sound and everything. I just lay in bed staring at the door. I'm thinking it's one of the cats and that it will walk away any second. But the door stops and there's nothing on the other side. I get up after thinking about even moving and walking over to the door. I peek out of the hall and there's nothing there. I just end up closing the door and there are no locks on the down doors. I probably watched Revenge of the Nerd three times before I fell asleep. The second incident probably happened a few weeks later. Her brother Alan is now back and their older sister's boyfriend, John, is staying over. John and I are on the floor. I'm 15 years old, Alan is around 16 and John is 17. While laying there, I start hearing this heartbeat sound. I wonder if it's just me but then Alan sits up in bed and asks if we can hear anything. John sits up and says it sounds like a heartbeat. So now I sit up and we all sit there quietly listening to this heartbeat. It sounds like if you were to put your ear to someone's chest, but without the muffledness. So we all get up and open the bedroom door and the sound gets louder. We all look at each other like, what the hell? And just close the door. It stopped after a minute or so. And we spent an hour talking about it and sharing stories. This third incident happened one night that I was sitting in the living room area downstairs in the first floor with my ex. It's probably close to midnight and we just finished watching a VHS movie when the VCR cuts to static, when the film ends when it auto rewinds. So, she and I are just sitting there talking to each other and she's looking at the TV and she just breaks out into a scream and stands up on the couch and takes off. I follow her and have no idea what the hell is going on and she tells me that she saw a face in the TV static. I never saw it, but it scared the shit out of me. The fourth incident happened one night when we were on the couch in the living room again, and she was sleeping. I was watching TV, and she woke up screaming, claiming she was dreaming of a blue light coming from the sunroom, which was located directly behind the TV room. 
This room is accessed on doors located to the left and right of the TV stand. She says the blue light turned into something that attacked the both of us on the couch. She said she woke up right before it got to us, and her screaming scares the shit out of 15-year-old me. The fifth incident happened shortly after. We were back in the living room of nightmares, and we had just finished watching a movie and turned off the TV and were talking. A few minutes into the conversation, the radio had turned on and started playing static with some distorted male voice. Nothing could be made out, but you could tell it was male. I remember jumping over the couch, leaving her ass behind when it happened, and she followed, after screaming of course. But I can vouch for this, because the radio was unplugged. We had to plug in the VCR, therefore there was no cable to connect the radio. And I can tell you with 100% certainty that this radio was not plugged into the wall and there were no batteries in it at the time. She tells me that the voice that she heard sounded like her late stepfather. I don't know who he was, as I never met him. This sixth incident happened one evening at around 5 or 6 p.m. She and I were in the computer room. This room had a two-door entry point that led into the foyer, where the front door was. Across from this was an open room living area. We were playing Sims or roller coaster tycoons. It was all new at the time, and all of a sudden, we both hear a female voice coming from across the foyer from the living room. We both look over at the couch, because it sounded like the voice was coming from that room, and we saw nothing, but the voice continued. We both ran out the front door and waited outside for her mum to arrive home from work. And we told her what happened, but she just laughed about it. So, life moves on. For the next few years, I continued experiencing strange and paranormal experiences. One that stands out, though, happened about four or five years later, after my life had taken a somewhat different turn. I was chief dispatcher, stationed on Camp Schwab, Okinawa, Japan, back in 2005. I had to stay overnight at a lot, on our motor pool, for midnight vehicle runs. Our motor pool was located in the corner of the base, on top of a hill surrounded by trees. This area has since been expanded, and the trees are gone ruins the feeling of isolation. But anywho, the last vehicle left around midnight, and it was now around 1.30 or 2, and I was getting ready for bed. Those vehicles would have to be back by 6, and I just slipped in one of my Everybody Loves Raymond DVDs, and set up a cot to sleep in the office of my boss. The motor pool is surrounded by a 10-foot barbed wire fence and locked with a chain and padlock, which I secured when the last vehicle left. This gate is located across from the main room office. I was about 150 yards away. The office I'm in is surrounded by windows, and mind you, I have been up here all day since 
Standing in the main office, about to pick an episode, I heard a loud banging from the steel door that is located out in the hallway, which was on the other side of the wooden door in the office, and I was in. The steel door was out, and to the left, about 20 feet from this wooden door, and led outside. It also made a very distinctive sound when it opened and closed, because the metal would always catch the top of the frame. Very annoying. It sounded as if the door were being kicked in. So I'm standing there, with the Raymond DVD, looping on the main title screen thinking to myself, What the hell? I'm about 20 at the time, and alone, and very scared, knowing that I'm the only one in this secluded area. After around six to seven bangs, it stops. I'm just standing there looking at the wooden door to see what's next. This steel door never opened, but I hear footsteps from out in the hall. Now I'm really freaking out, but still standing there waiting for this cheap ass wooden door to explode in my face with a demon behind it. So now I'm focusing on the bottom of the wooden door, where there is about an inch of space from the door to the concrete. And I see a shadow pass by, from right to left, in sync with footsteps. The shadow was heading into the maintenance bay area. And as the shadow passes by, the footsteps stop. I slowly walk over to the wooden door and lock it. Now, I'm trying to think rationally on what the hell happened. I can't figure it out. Other guys say the base was haunted, as it was a World War II site after all. After around 10 minutes of realising that I wasn't able to sleep, and my Raymond DVD still looping on the menu screen, I decided to go and check it out. As you would. Sadly, I had nothing to defend myself with, so I just slowly walked out into the hallway checking the steel door, closed and locked, as it would be, then out into the maintenance bay. I turned on the lights and saw nothing, just Humvees and a seven-ton truck that were being worked on earlier. I checked the back rooms, nothing. So I went back to the main office, locked that shitty wooden door and played Everybody Loves Raymond. About an hour prior to this, my friend wanted to come up and grab some files he needed for tomorrow, but I told him I would be getting ready for bed. After this happened, I realised I couldn't sleep, so I called him back and asked him if he still wanted to get his stuff. Sadly, I had to unlock the main gate, so I ran across the motorpool as fast as I could and unlocked that shit. Keeping in mind the trees on either side of the main gate are in complete darkness, and it didn't help. Once I saw his headlights coming up the hill, I felt a little better. And while he was there, I tried to sleep, and sure enough I did. I woke up later, around 6am to the sound of a 7 ton horn at the gate. Only time this happened whilst I worked late, and the next time I had to stay over, I was pretty jumpy, but thankfully, nothing happened. While still in Japan, we went to Iwo Jima for the 60th anniversary. 
we drove veterans around to the sights in Humvees all day. Near the end, close to sunset, I was with one of the SSGTS. We were tasked with going to all the sites to make sure that no one was left behind as the plane was departing soon. We pulled up to one location, Hospital Cave. It's where the Japanese took their wounded. Lots of cave structures in the island, mind you. Very interesting place. So we pull up, and the sergeant says, just go inside to make sure no one is wandering around in there. So, I get out, and as I'm walking up to the entrance, I notice the generator is off. I'll be damned if I'm walking in a dark-ass cave. So I make the command decision that I would walk only to where the light starts fading into darkness. So about 40 feet in, I simply spoke out loud, Anyone in here? And as quickly as someone would respond, I heard multiple Japanese voices from deeper in the cave. Not faint, distinctively male. And I knew Japanese and would be able to understand. This didn't freak me out much, since I can accept that a lot of people died here. But I just backed up and walked out and told my sergeant that no one was there. I didn't tell her about it though. This next story took place in Cherry Point, North Carolina, a few years later in 2007. When I first got my barracks room, I didn't have a roommate. The rooms were very bare and only had two sets of beds and a nightstand in between. I did not have any table lights. For about a week straight, I had the same recurring nightmare of these dog demons attacking me, taking me down and ripping my throat open. I would always wake up sweating and freaked out, and of course in the dark, because the only light immediately available was my cell phone, which was just a Motorola Razor. The dream felt very real, and waking up in the dark never made it better. I ended up going to Walmart to buy a shitty lamp. A few months later, I was sent to Camp Lejuni, North Carolina. I spent a few months there, and we came back to Cherry Point. Lucky me, the belittling sergeant made me go right back to the same room I was in before. But this time, I had a roommate, Joe. One night, I woke up to three loud bangs on the nightstand next to me. The best way to describe it, and only military folks might get it, but the lights, lights, lights command you get in boot camp. They would tell you that the lights would come on. Basically, it's time to get the hell up. Well, I woke up on the second slam and sat up on the third slam. On the desk, the lights from the street outside were shining through the curtain. So there was some light in the room. I looked over at Joe and he is sound asleep. What the hell? I ended up just going back to sleep and brushing it off. As just another really crazy night. I never told my roommate about it, 
because he didn't seem like the kind of guy who would believe it. Fast forward to 2008, in Laurel, Maryland. I am now out of the military and living with my new, now ex, girlfriend's parents. I am sleeping in her older sister's room, who has since moved out. I stayed up late to play video games and was trying to sleep. It was around 3am. While laying there, a music box starts playing on the dressing corner. I open my eyes, stare into the ceiling, and just take in that this is happening. I sit up and look, and I see the music box, but it's closed. It's the one that plays when you open the top box. It played for a few seconds, then stops. I get up and walk over to it. I open it up, and it starts playing again, then fades off, because you have to wind it up for more freaky fun. I have slept in this room for months, and this has never happened. I laugh it off as one of the less freaky things that have happened, and go to get a glass of water and then return to bed. A few days later, I'm downstairs in the basement watching TV, and right above was the room I'm sleeping in, which was the older sister's room. Whilst I'm sitting there, I start to hear footsteps above me in the room walking around. I pause and just listen. It's clearly footsteps. Hard to mistake that. The hardwood floors above me were creaking. And I will also note that I am the only one home during this day. I don't know the history of the house either, and it stops after a minute or so, and I continue to watch TV. A few weeks had passed, and at this point, Ghost Hunters had quelled my interest. So I was watching that. So one night, I decided to use my MacBook to record audio as I slept. I did this for about a week, and only once did I ever catch anything. It sounded like a faint male voice, but I couldn't make out anything it was saying. That house certainly had me on my toes as there were plenty of paranormal experiences not worth mentioning that I had. But something happened a few years later. I responded to a 911 hang-up at one of our ranges at around 9pm. This was in 2012. They're out in the middle of the woods near an old wildlife refuge, so they're pretty isolated. There are no streetlights out there, and it's a few buildings with a lot of open fields, for sniper ranges and a ton of woods. I pulled up to the gate, unlocked it and drove in. I parked, and walked up to the classrooms where the 911 hang-up phone was located. I should also note, that the entire area has significance to the Civil War era and World War II, and it is a military installation. I would also like to note, that the number for the 911 hang-up does not exist, but it occasionally trips our dispatch call centre for unknown reasons. I've had my share of paranormal experiences as by this point you should know. So I take the patrol shotgun out, so that I feel better about taking this stupid call in the dark of night, while responding to a 911 hang-up line that no longer exists. 
I unlocked the door to the small wooden trailer building, and as I opened the door, the only light illuminating my path is a red exit sign directly above my head. I don't see any light switches, so immediately I take a few steps in to locate them. As I do, there is a doorway directly to my right, and by this time I can see in my peripheral vision a human shaped shadow with the red exit sign light illuminating it. I quickly turn with the shotgun as my heart starts racing. I can make out a face. I quickly start hitting the wall and manage to find a light switch, which reveals a training dummy sitting in a chair. I take a breath and step back outside onto the deck and radio in for assistance, as I'm now going to say, screw this ghost hunt by myself. I'll go back inside and do a quick sweep of the building, as it only has five small training rooms. I also check the room where the phone line doesn't exist. No phone, shocker. I then walk back outside and wait for my backup officer, who comes within eight minutes of my call. Once he gets there, he already knows how dumb this is, because this call is creepy whenever we get it. We then proceed to check out the outside of the remaining three buildings in the area. Nothing. So we start heading back to our vehicles. As we approach our cars, an alarm starts going off on a small metal box attached to a metal unit sticking out of the ground. It flashes a red light affixed to the top of the box, and we look at each other like, really? And start walking towards it. It's located between the training trailer and the range slash bay office. I radio in the alarm and ask if they can contact facilities, since neither of us knew this was even a thing out here, and we had no idea how to shut it off. I then notice there's a small keyhole in the metal box that is attached under the light. I grab my keyring and try and see if anything would fit. And as soon as I made contact with the key to the metal, the alarm stopped flashing. I looked at my friend and said, we need to leave. This is getting stupid. He agreed. I radioed them and told them that the alarm had stopped and that we were getting back in service. We would have to drive out to the same location again, located on the wildlife refuge area, where we had ammo supplies and point bunkers. These are alarmed by our alarm center, by contact alarms, but still require visual checks. We would have to check these three times during shift. I work mids, so the last check would be after sunset. To get out to this location, you had to drive past the range classroom I previously mentioned. And this road turns into dirt and rock and surrounded by trees. There's a big chain link fence that separates the ranges and the wildlife refuge. So I get out, use our dumb metal key that makes the fence open automatically and usually takes a while to get to work. So that's fun, especially when it's tick season. It's a winding road, but mostly flat, and there are trees on both sides of the road. And again, there is no light out here, so it's only your headlights. 
and it takes around 10 minutes to get to the bunker fence. Prior to making the turn on the road that leads to the bunkers, there's a marker on the left side of the road that just says Site D. I'm familiar with this location because I and a few others worked and used to visit it time and time again because we're nerds when it comes to ghost stuff. But it's an old parish cemetery and has a place marker. Apparently it's from the early 1800s before the parish was relocated and it has a little over 20 headstones in there. Some faded and some in pretty good shape for being quite old. It's kind of creepy. So I complete the bunker check and head back. As I turn from the bunker road towards the road that leads to site D, the grave site is now on my right. I'm heading back to the range area, so I'm looking at another 10 minute drive back into this dark wooded area. I'm probably a hundred yards from site D. When this orb of light appears, I sized it to be about the same size as your average beach ball. And at this point I stop the vehicle and watch it. It's hovering close to the ground in the grassy area, just off the road next to the Site D sign. There's no illumination around it, just a ball of light, and it lasts for around 5 to 10 seconds. And just vanishes. When it comes to the paranormal, the only thing I've seen were moving objects, shadows and heard voices. I've never seen lights or apparitions. So I take a moment to try and understand what I saw. I figure maybe, just maybe it was from my headlights. So I back up to the Nunca Road, about 50 yards back, and drive forward to try and recreate what just happened. I stopped near where I was before and just sat there and thought to myself, maybe it was some paranormal shit that just happened and no one would believe me if I said a thing. So I put it back in drive and headed back. And as I drove past site D, where I saw the light, I could only see some sticks and grass in the area, nothing else. I looked up towards the dark road that leads up to the graveyard, expecting to see a demon ready to charge me, but it was just pitch black. So now my imagination starts running wild and I feel like I just need to go. So I cut a few minutes off my 10 minute drive while hoping I don't slam into deer or other forest creature while constantly looking in my rear view mirror, which is pointless because the only thing I can see is dust from the road from the taillights. So it makes it worse. I get to the gate that separates the refuge from the range control and I'm a little hesitant to get out of the car, still thinking about that demon. Let me try and point out that this time in my life, I had been watching a lot of my haunted house slash my ghost story. So I'm in a bad place mentally, I guess. So I let the dust settle after hopping out of the car and finally leave. I can't see shit because I pulled up too close to the gate and the damn metal key isn't working. I look back down the road and I can't see anything. Finally, the key works and the gate makes a loud beep, which made me jump. I drove through and was free. 
It was a strange occurrence, and it would have been better if I hadn't been thinking about demons the entire time. Not long after, I was tasked with training a new officer, and we were doing a sight check of the range control, the same place where I had the 911 hang up. This was still 2012, and both the orb of light and the 911 hang up had already occurred. It was around 8.30, and we'd just finished walking around checking the doors and making sure that they were locked. I would also like to note that we have to keep the gate secured even when we come and go onto the ranges. So we locked the gate and we came in. She decides she needs to use the bathroom, which is located up on the platform where the classrooms were. So I watch her walk up and into the bathrooms. I will also note that there are male and female bathrooms and I'm sitting in the passenger seat looking around. We're parked in the centre of a parking lot, about 300 feet long, with three rows of cars. Not too big, but it's an open area. The vehicle is facing the classrooms and the bathrooms, so she could see where she was walking. However, there are lights that were on the other side of the bathrooms themselves. As someone from earlier left it on, before they secured the ranges at 4pm. So... I can also see onto the deck. As I'm sitting there waiting, I hear from the window behind me on the rear passenger window, tap, 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 clear as day. It's no different than if you took your fingernail and tapped it on a plane of glass. I just stared straight ahead and pressed the car lock, but never turned around. I grabbed my phone and quickly texted my friend Bree, who was one of the friends who would go to the gravesite with me and I told her what just happened. She laughed and told me to get out of there. And after a minute or two later, my officer in training exits the bathroom and starts speed walking to the car whilst I'm looking around. I unlock the door, and once she hits the pavement from the wooden ramp that leads into the parking lot, she gets in. Before I can even tell her what happened, she asks, did you go into the bathroom too? and I told her no. She continues to ask me if I was walking around, and I told her that I was in the car the whole time. She told me to stop messing with her, as she knew I was there. I told her that I was in the car, and then she tells me that while she was there, she heard footsteps outside onto the wooden deck, and now she's freaked out. So I say, really? Well, let me tell you what I just dealt with and explained about the freaky window tapping. We both agreed to get out of there as quickly as possible. So as we were driving off, we were talking about both incidences and I start telling her about the 911 hang up and the ball of light as we were leaving. We talk about this until our next stop at a small airport that we have equipment at. The drive is probably close to 10 minutes away the airfield is actually across from the woods that Site D Cemetery is located in by a good distance. So we pull over after our check, and we're talking about what happens. She takes her phone out, and she shows me an article on a ghost story that she was reading earlier in the week. Once we're finished, we were going to drive off, but noticed that the headlights were off. 
She swears she never turned them off, but I can't confirm this. Three years later, our in-service sucks, but we have to meet at the ranges at 7am on one of the days. I live an hour away from work, and I don't feel like waking up any earlier than I have to, because the day before, we didn't get off until 10pm, so I decide to just sleep at work and make it interesting. I decide to sleep at the ranges, because I just want to say that I did it. So, as everyone is leaving, I'm sitting in my car, a four-door sedan, and I have the back seat down that opens towards the trunk space. I have the car running, and the only light I have is from my headlights. So I start texting my friend Brie again, and telling her that this was probably a dumb idea, but maybe I'll get to see Claude, as Claude is the name of one of the cemetery gravestones the first one when you walked into the gated cemetery at Site D. We would always joke around that Claude would come and haunt us for walking around the cemetery because we were dumb. I call dispatch and tell them that I'll be out there all night and that I'm sleeping in my car. So they would let the midnight crew know that when they did their site checks. At this point in time, we no longer checked the bunkers, but they would have to do checks on range control three times a night. I left my police radio on to listen to the chatter since I couldn't keep my car on all night. It was just a little too freaky for me to just listen to the crickets and look into the dark void. So I'm laying there and hearing the midnight officer call out for his checks. So I keep popping up to see if he comes in. It's around 11.30pm now and I waited until midnight. When I realised this guy is just calling shit out and wasn't even doing his checks. Lazy night shift. Before I get into this part, I want to let you know that although me wanting to sleep in my car at a place where I have experienced a few, what I consider, paranormal things, I did take the initiative to park my car as close to the range bay wall as possible. I had a forklift with a box covering my passenger side of the car and parked close enough to the range of the bay wall that you couldn't walk between it. Only my driver's side and front of my car is exposed. So I'm laying there in my car, in my sleeping bag, with my head near the driver's seat. It's a little after midnight and I was browsing on my phone and my mind was occupied. All of a sudden, I hear a loud bang on the side of the car. It was enough force to where I felt the car frame move. I pop up, thinking it was the midnight guy. I use my flashlight, but nothing is around me. But I'm in it to win it, baby. I pressed the car door locks just to make sure it was locked. And I took one look around with the flashlight and still nothing. Just open parking lot and darkness. So now I reposition myself in the car. I am now uncomfortably sleeping headfirst in the truck, with my feet towards the driver's door. Because I'll be damned if whatever just did that will catch me sleeping all night. Nothing else happened that night. 
but it did take me a while to fall asleep. I woke up at 7am, making me a few minutes late for training, even though I slept right next to the building. It sucks. There was also no damage from my car from the bang. This is the final tale of what's happened to me. My friend Troy was working at one of our offsites. It's nowhere near where any of the other incidences took place. It's in a different zip code. It was after working hours, probably 9pm, and he was sitting in the police room that is located in the lobby of the building. We have turnstiles, similar to an amusement park, where you would badge in and then walk through. They turn vertically, and Base Pro uses the same ones. So there's no one in the building after 6pm. He's watching TV waiting for his relief at 9.30, when he hears bleep, the sound the turnstile makes when you swipe your badge to leave. He jumps up and looks out into the lobby. The door is right next to the area. You could just lean over and look, and sees the turnstile cycle through, watching the metal bars physically turn clockwise as if someone was walking through, but insists that no one was there. He grabs the key ring, and speed walks out of the lobby, locks the door, and waits at the main gate into the car for his relief. He refuses to work that building anymore. I spoke to a few midnight people, and they said they heard footsteps, female laughter, and voices sometimes at night. Apparently years ago, a contractor woman who did access control had a heart attack and died, either at the facility or later at hospital. So they presume it's her. I've been working for this place for nine years, and that has never happened whilst I've been there. So it must have been a long time ago. <laughs>